Okay, got it. Ready? <clears throat> You're listening to Paul Elmore. Paul Elmore. <laughs> Shh. We'll talk about it a little later tonight, but if we grow, we have this little box around our feet, and that's kind of our comfort zone, and we can kind of move back and forth and hit the edges on that comfort zone, and we kind of stay in there really, really easy, and we can have this mindset that says, I want to grow, I want to change, I want to become better, and so what we do is we say, there's the line, I'm going to step outside of my comfort zone. You ready? Here we go. Okay, that was great. I'm going to grow. I'm going to, ch- that was fantastic. That, that half a second outside that, my comfort zone, that's going to change me forever. That's not how it works, okay? How it works is there's that line, you step out of it and you go, oh man, I hate it out here. This is uncomfortable, I don't like it, this is scary, this is new, I'm not familiar with it. But if you stay there, the longer you just live in that spot, what happens is is you find out, number one, it doesn't kill you, and number two, it actually becomes fairly comfortable. And so now, your world just got much, much bigger. And you can move around, you have a little bit more freedom, and so, you go, I like this. What else can I grow in? So here's a line. So you step over here and, oh, I hate it again. Stepping over that line doesn't ever get easier. It's like, dang it, this is, this is uncomfortable and scary and I hate it again. But it doesn't kill you and it becomes comfortable and now your world is much, much bigger. And you can move around in it without having as much fear, without having as much um, uh, resistance in your life. There are some people who spend their entire life looking at the lines going, how else can I grow? How else can I change? So you might have been at refuge for three, four, five, nine years, okay? What's the one step you can take outside that your comfort zone and say, how am I going to be changed and grow today? Because it's the last night, I always leave um, a, as much extra time as I can for kind of a Q&A time at the end. Since there's only six weeks instead of eight weeks this, this summer, I'm going to do a little bit of teaching on this final night, but I'm going to try to leave as much Q&A so the content's going to be a little bit shorter tonight. But it... If we can get all the distracting questions out of the way now, so I got derailed at the end of the session last time, and we ended up in somewhere who knows where last time. So any good questions now that you just, you're dying to ask? It's like this, something you said, I don't know what to do with. We can, we can get derailed early, and that way we just can have as much time to get back on track later on. So any questions or thoughts about anything from the last several weeks or anything we covered last week? Hey, we got one already. Fantastic. Yes. Just admit that it's time to fail and move on to something else, like with a job or a relationship. When is it time to be like, okay, I'm not going to grow in this failure. I yep. just need to move away from something else. Yep. I call it dead horse day. Strange that I have a name for that, isn't that? That's weird. Uh, it's called dead horse day. It's the day that you go, it's dead. Kicking it ain't going to do any more at all. It's time to let it die. Um, I actually have another phrase. I haven't seen this anywhere. If anyone sees this in a book and I stole it, let me know because I need to give credit where credit's due. I call it toxic hope. It's that thing that says, even though I have tried and I've tried and I've tried and I've done everything and it's still not working, there's still something I got to do. And so this toxic hope keeps you stuck in this place that isn't really going to change. It isn't going to, there's just nothing else you can do. So when is that moment? I don't know. It's, it's, there are certain markers you can look for. Typically, if you've done everything that is reasonable, appropriate, um, uh, moral, selfless, those kinds of things, and the, either the recipient or the situation just is out of your control, or even the other person's usually out of your control, you can't make anybody do anything, um, and they still just they, they won't get there, 
then it is absolutely appropriate to say, I now kind of release you. I will let you kind of go live your way, and I'm going to have to go live mine. And again, each situation is specific, but there is absolutely a time when it is very, very good and appropriate to um, cut, your, cut your losses. It's actually because I got derailed a bunch this summer, which happens a lot. There's actually a whole other principle called the sunk cost fallacy. It's really fascinating, the sunk cost fallacy. It's basically the concept that says, if, um, if I'm going to a movie, tickets are $10, and as I go there and I, and I go to buy a ticket for $10, I look at my wallet and I realize, dang, I lost a $10 bill. I had two, two $10 bills in there, and now I only have one. Dang it, that feels really, really bad. Oh, well, I buy a ticket, and you, so you, and you go see the movie. You'll go see the movie, and everything's fine. How much did the movie cost you? 20 bucks. You're out 20 bucks. $10 is lost. Again, you didn't, you didn't pay it on the movie, but you had $20 in your wallet, and now you have none. You have one movie ticket. You get to go see the movie. Most people, when they, they've done the surveys that said if you go show up at the movie theater and you're, you've lost a $10 bill and you go to pay, you go to pay $10, um, 99, no, not 99, about uh, 91% of people would actually go and would pay for that ticket and go see the movie. But what happens is if you go and you, you have $20 in your wallet, you spend $10 on a ticket, and on the way to, from the ticket booth to the dude that collects the tickets, you look around and you've lost that ticket. It's like, oh man, I can't get into the movies now. Over 50% will not go back and buy another ticket. But how much would it cost if you had to go back and buy a second ticket? 20 bucks. When we've already invested time and energy into something, we we tend to keep investing into it or, or we don't, it's more valuable to us in some way and so it's disproportionately um, weighted even though it costs the exact same amount. And so it's actually called the Concord, Concord principle as well. Early on they knew that when they were building supersonic jet, the Concord, remember that plane before it crashed and died? Um, they knew, they knew out of the gate it was going to be so unbelievably unrealistic financially, and yet they built two of them because all of the contractors had so much money sunk into it, they said, we might as well just keep going. It's a strange concept, but they lost money, and so yeah, so dead horse day, sunk cost fallacy, Concord principle. Yes. I just had a question about, do you have a, like a website, for example, I can find additional readings on this material or references? Or yes. I do. Any other questions? <laughs> the last slide on I have tonight is going to have a whole list of resources and websites and stuff you can go to. So you can get it right there. Good question. Anything else? Just anything else that's been bugging you or before we jump in? All right, good. Last question's at the end then. Last week we talked about fixed mindset versus growth mindset. And the number one question I got from lots of people that I talked to between now and last week was how? How do I change from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset? Understanding it isn't quite enough. Understanding it and going, yep, I have a fixed mindset. Awesome. I'm screwed. That's, 
That's not what we want to do here. So we want to focus on the how. How do I get from a fixed mindset, that concept that is actually the mindset for people who tend to um, also find themselves unlucky because they're not open to new experiences. Lucky people tend to find themselves um, willing to try and try and try, and even though it doesn't work out, they still end up having lots of experiences which, which make them be perceived as luckier, even though they're not actually luckier. So, how do I change from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset? We are gonna blitz through this tonight because the answer is actually not that complex. Um, there's, a, there's kind of a four-stage process to learning. It's actually really fun. First, you have unconscious incompetence. Unconscious incompetence. Basically, that means I am unaware of how stupid I am. That's all it means. Unconscious, I'm unaware, and incompetent that I am not very good at something. That is actually, some of you might have been unconsciously incompetent before you came in last week, not realizing, oh my gosh, I have a fixed mindset. That's new to me. I, I now know that, which is called conscious incompetence. Last week, you realized, I'm not very good at this mindset thing, but now, now I know it. Thanks, Paul. Glad I came. I got this little handout, but I don't know what to do with it. So that moves to conscious incompetence. From there, we have to move to conscious competence. That is where you are having to, you, you're doing it right. You're now competent. You are trying something new, and you are you are fairly successful, but you have to think about every move you make to be able to do it competently. I always go back to the example of when I was learning how to drive, where actually I just taught my, two of my kids how to drive, my daughter being one of them. That's an adventure. Um, hands at 10 and 2, sit in the car, look over the shoulder, Okay, adjust the mirror, adjust the other mirror, hands still at 10 and 2, look over the shoulder, you know, get out of the parking place, get out of the parking place, you're bouncing around, you're jerking, you're turning the wheels, you're, you're driving all over the place, and you can still keep the car in the lane mostly, and you, you don't run into people very often, but it takes a lot of mental energy to drive that car for the first time. You don't know how to step on the gas enough, you don't know how hard to step on the brake. Remember that, for people driving, remember that stage? Yeah. Until you move into unconscious competence. That's the, several years ago, I was driving an old Honda that I had and I was doing 70 miles an hour down I-205 going south. I was on my cell phone and I was eating a hamburger, manual transmission Honda, okay? I'm doing all this and the guy I was talking to told me something I needed to write down. So I started to reach under the driver passenger seat looking for a piece of paper or a pencil or something like that. 70 miles an hour, soda between my legs, hamburger in my hand, driving a motor vehicle, which is actually like a, just a ballistic missile, okay, that I'm trying to steer. I'm not thinking about how I'm driving anymore. By the way, I realized, I caught myself going, what in the world are you doing, Paul? And I told the guy, you should see me right now because I'm, I'm like death on wheels, so I'm going to call you back. I hung up. And, but I moved into a state of unconscious competence. I'm good at it, and I don't have to think about it anymore. You can do that from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset, but you will not jump quickly from the first stage to the last stage. You gotta go through that middle stage, which is, dang it, I am now aware that I'm not very good. And that's actually the stage where we get really hung up 
with, with some of the negative limiting beliefs that we have, which says, why even try? Why bother? You're not going to get good at it anyway. You're pretty stupid. You tried something before and it didn't work and you're going to try again, really? Don't waste your time. All these messages that kind of start playing automatically over and over and over. And then you have to get back to the conscious competence stage, which is, actually, I think I'm pretty good at this, but it is not easy. It is a ton of work. It is just, it requires so much energy and effort, but I'm going to get good at it. And you just keep trying, and you keep trying, and you keep trying. My son, I taught him how to drive a manual transmission, which is a dying art, by the way. Um, and I think everyone needs to learn it. And we, we bounced around in that thing for two weeks as he was trying to figure out the clutch and the gas and all those things. Remember when cars, the automatics weren't even there. I mean, this, you had to drive a manual. And we tried this and we tried this and we tried this. And I, and I can remember where we were at when my son found the sweet spot. And he, he got that thing going smoothly. It's like, hey, well done, buddy, well done. And he did it again and he did it again. And since that one moment... 99 times out of 100, it's a smooth start. He's really, really confident in it. Hills, stoplights, intersections, traffic, no problem. He can drive it because I was there at the moment when he moved from conscious competence to unconscious competence. It was just really fun. It's neat to watch that in a weird nerd sort of way. So how do we move from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset? Four words. Experience wrapped in humility. Here's what I mean. If you think about it, fixed mindset is actually a place that says my truth, my experience, the things that I, the perspectives I have towards the world, those are absolutely true and I'm not going to come off of them. So you try to convince me that I'm a person though that's who's worthwhile and I argue back with you, no I'm not, I'm, I really am stupid. That is, there, that's actually a place of, of pride, can we even use that? Which it says, it doesn't matter what you say, I know that my truth is right, and I'm not gonna, I'm, it's just it's harder for me to budge off of that. That gets really, really problematic, and it requires an attitude of humility. Humility is the ability to come up to someone and say, I might actually be wrong. I'm open, okay? I might consider this. And so, that's not easy. Humbling ourselves actually requires so much personal energy and confidence to do. I, I can tell you story after story of when I messed up as a father and I had to go to my children when they were just little. And I had to go, you know what, guys? The way I just responded was absolutely wrong. I was wrong. You were right. And I'm your dad. And I need you. I'm going to ask you to forgive me. The ability to go to someone and say, I might have had this wrong, takes tremendous courage. And it, it is not easy. It's not easy. When you do that for yourself, I, I think, I, I feel like I'm just stupid. I feel like I'm just not worthwhile. Humble yourself and say, I might actually be wrong. What if? What if that's actually not true? 
staying locked on that is actually a place of pride. So humility is super, super important. Think of it like a belief system. Again, fixed mindset. Fords are better than Chevys. That's what I grew up in. That is, that's the reality. And if you drive a Chevy, you know what? You are just a, less of a human being because everyone knows, of course, Fords are better. How, how does that belief get shaped? That through experience, through backwood parties, through shotguns, through all sorts of stuff. And that belief gets shaped pretty, pretty firmly in, in you. And, and if you show up at the family reunion driving a Chevy to a Ford family, what happens to you? You come out and your tires are slashed. Don't even think of showing up in a Toyota. That's, you know, that's, that's then the truck's upside down, usually if you show up like that. Um, so if you can move to a place that says, I know I've grown up that says Fords are better than Chevys, but I'm going to go test drive a Chevy. I'm going to humble myself and, and lower myself and say, I'm going to try a Chevy. I, I know I'll, I'll wear a disguise, I won't let anyone see me, but I'm going to try driving a Chevy and see if that is actually as good as a Ford. And the reality is what? They both have four wheels and get you from point A to point B, and they're all about the same. I don't want to hear it if you disagree. So, <laughs> experience. Experiences are the number one thing that shape our beliefs. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but you have to have an actual experience. You can't just think about it. You can't just feel your way through it. You have to actually do something. So when you're doing something with a humble attitude, that is what you, that's how you start to change your, yourself from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset. Now, one of the things that gets in the way, and we alluded to it last week, and we're going to get to it this week, is something called confirmation bias. Yep, I got it on there. How about that? Um, confirmation bias, again, is this, is this, it's the same thing as the purple bumblebee syndrome. Remember the purple bumblebee syndrome? Have we talked about that? I can't remember. Does that sound familiar to someone? Thank you. Nod. It's hard to forget, I'd imagine, the purple bumblebee syndrome. Um, confirmation bias is, is, in the same, is in the same realm that says this pre-existing negative belief is already there. And what happens is, is I have a whole variety of experiences out there, but I tend to filter out or I actually let through the experiences which already confirm my negative belief. And the ones that actually challenge my beliefs, I actually don't see them. I literally, physically don't see them. They don't carry as much weight because they, I don't have anywhere to hang them inside my brain. I just, they don't make as much sense. And so we, the confirmation bias keeps us stuck, keeps us rooted going over and over and over in some of the negative stuff. Um, what's even worse What actually even gets more complicating beyond confirmation bias is you can actually start to do things which say I'm going to start to try to prove my negative beliefs. I'm not just going to be open or to, to neutral experiences and let through the ones that already confirm it. I'm actually going to go out and seek out experiences which will, which will disprove the opposite thing. So it's like um, this is where you get pundits, okay? This is where you get people who kind of have a one really strict mentality. Again, back to the Fords and Chevys. You, you're not even just going out and saying Chevys are bad. It means you're going out and you're looking for every 
Chevy that's broken down on the side of the road, and you're taking pictures of it and posting it on the IHateChevys.com website, and you are, you are now gathering information which absolutely um, contradicts um, or, or that, that reinforces that belief that, again, Fords are better and Chevys are bad. And you, you very, very intentionally start to find things that keep you stuck. That, that becomes toxic. That becomes a, a, a way of life which just, again, reinforces that fixed mindset and rarely, if ever, um, makes it possible to, to move to a growth mindset as long as you are still actively pursuing ideas and thoughts and beliefs to, to keep you stuck there. Does that make sense? There it is. Our tendency to find all the things that confirm our pre-existing negative beliefs. <clears throat> Humility says I'm willing to admit that I'm wrong in my belief system. <clears throat> Here's the here is um this concept has actually been a pet pet project of mine probably for the last three or four years now. How do, how do beliefs actually get formed? Because the belief level, we have people at three levels, okay? You can, you can work on the thinking level. That's a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy. That's a lot of um, rational emotive therapy. That's kind of this thinking level. You have the emotional level, trying to figure out what your feelings are, how to validate your emotions. And a lot of therapy, a lot of programs focus on those two aspects alone. But the reality is there's a third, there's a third level which is more important, which is the belief level. Belief levels will always affect your thinking and your feelings. And so my quest, my question I've had over and over and over again is, what actually forms the beliefs? How in the world do they get rooted and stuck? And again, the short answer to this is... I lost my remote. There it is. Let's see if it has the answer. Hey, there it is. Experiences that created heightened emotional states. Not every experience goes into shape a belief system because we have thousands and thousands and thousands of experiences all through our life, young to old, and not every single experience actually shapes your belief system. It's the experiences that come when you are in a heightened emotional state. That piece right there is the most important because it actually puts your brain into an entirely different mode uh, and it lets, lets things sink into a deep, deep, deep state. Um, my daughter and I and my other son, Sam, we just went to uh, Target two nights ago to pick up something. And as we were walking, for whatever strange reason, I had a song from the kids' movie The Jungle Book stuck in my head. Why I have that there, it's weird, but I did. Um, and so I was just humming that, and my son Sam, he goes, when I hear you humming that, it instantly makes me go back to when I was about three or four years old, and I was sick one day from school. And I can remember sitting, laying on the couch, and I can remember watching the movie, and I can remember hearing that song. I can remember the sun coming in through the, through the window, and I can remember that my tummy didn't feel good, and I can remember mom doing this in the kitchen. It, instantaneously, he was there, and he could remember it detail by detail by detail by detail. Why? Why in the world is that 
memory? Why in the world does that story stick out for my son? Because in some way, somehow, he was in a heightened emotional state and it, and it imprinted into his brain in, in some unique way <clears throat> so he can remember it. And those things are what start to shape a belief system. So what do you think he's learning about being sick at home? What does he learn about life from the scenario I just told you? It's, it's a good setup. It is a good setup. You get to watch a movie. Or... Yep, you get to watch a movie. There's, well, comfort there's comfort when you're sick. Very good. Very good. What else could he possibly learn in that moment? Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, but is it possible that you might be seeking something greater through that experience? Maybe. He's three or four, I'm not so sure. Maybe. He feels that he's cared for. If we want to go to attachment theory stuff, this is where some of that starts to, starts to sink in because you learn through being sick and watching a movie, when I, do, when I do feel bad, my needs are going to be met. I'm going to be cared for. Someone's going to pay attention to me. Now, I can also tell you stories from people I have sat with that when they were nine years old, having to get up multiple times in the middle of the night, go to the bathroom, get sick all over themselves, all over the bathroom, all over the toilet, massive, massive flu. And at eight, nine years old, nobody, nobody took care of them. They had to find their own medicine, whatever they could find in the, in the cabinets at home. And so, you know, what does an eight-year-old take for, for flu? I mean, you just don't know. So you, you just take whatever you can find. And, and even though they're feeling really, really sick, they have to go in and have to clean up the bathroom. <clears throat> and, <clears throat> excuse me, they have to go back to their bed by themselves for days. That breaks my heart. Because what does that child learn about the world? It's not safe. It's not. It's not safe. It's not trustworthy. It's what? Cold. It's cold. You're on, your own. You're on your own. But puking your guts out over a toilet at eight years old by yourself is a heightened emotional state. And so you start to let those experiences sink in and it teaches you about the world. This is where you can also insert um, bullying at school. That's a heightened emotional state. That is when you are literally just afraid of your safety, for your life, for your emotional safety, and you're learning things about yourself, about how the world's going to treat you as well. Bullying. Um, trauma. Clients I work with, sexual abuse survivors. That is an incredibly heightened emotional state when you are a small child and parts of you are being touched your, your body's on uber high alert and you start to learn things about yourself. You start to learn things about the world and the people that you can trust or not trust. Those things, it isn't just experience. It's experience that is, has a heightened emotional state. Is that making sense? Questions or thoughts or... Yes, ma'am. Uh, it seems like it would be... It's really easy to think of uh, maybe negative. Yeah. Fantastic question. I love that question. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and we tend to focus on those right now simply because they tend to be more prominent. The negative self-beliefs, the limiting beliefs get in the way more. Um, I can remember, for whatever reason, probably how long ago? Six years ago, seven years ago, my family went to Oaks Park. Anyone been to Oaks Park here? Great little amusement park. Um, the Screaming Eagle. You know what the Screaming Eagle is? It's kind of a big, <laughs> got hands up there. <clears throat> it's kind of a tri tripod thing, and it has this big swinging arm, and then there's a round thing on the bottom that rotates as it swings, and it goes almost upside down. I like roller coasters. They're a lot of fun. I grew up an hour from Disneyland, so I've been to a lot of amusement parks. I, I know Disneyland backwards and forwards and upside down, so Oaks Park is a little step down from, from <laughs> Disneyland. <clears throat> um, but for whatever reason, about six years ago, we were sitting, getting strapped into the Screaming Eagle, and it was the perfect conglomeration of experiences because the the bars come down, and they have big, huge monster speakers in the corners that play really good music. And as you sit there, the floor actually just drops out, so there's enough clearance when the thing swings by. And so the music starts up, and it, I don't can't tell you what song it was, but it had just the right beat, and it was starting to pump, and it was starting to go. And then the floor drops out, and then the thing starts to slowly spin back and forth, swing, and the music starts pumping bigger and bigger, and the thing gets going. And I couldn't help it. I couldn't help it, but the smile just came across my face, and it's like, this is a sweet moment. This is good. This is something to remember. And it, and it kept going swinging higher and higher. That's a heightened emotional state, by the way. I think it's going swinging because I like it scares me still. And it goes up higher and spins and higher, and you come back through, and the music's pumping as it goes right back through, and you go up higher again, and you spin around, and you come through. And it was for four minutes. It was perfect. <clears throat> Why that time versus, well, compared to, I think I was probably eight years old, the first time I was going on Space Mountain. My father and I were going on Space Mountain. I'd never been on it before. Anyone been on Space Mountain before? Yes, good hands. Long tunnels inside, spooky music going on, some, some steam and kind of uh, theatrical smoke going on. And I can remember my dad... Um, we came up to the very last exit that you could get out of line before we actually had to get on the ride. And he says, are you sure you want to go on this ride? And again, they create a really good heightened emotional state because of the music and the sound and the smoke and the eerie spooky things and all that. And it got to me. And I said, yep, dad, I'm out of here. And so we exited out that exit and I didn't get to go on at that time. <clears throat> and I can remember that moment very clearly as well. Two roller coaster stories. So there are, there are absolutely heightened emotional states that are positive. In fact, welcome to the way you change fixed mindset to growth mindset. You can actually orchestrate them. You can actually create them. You can seek them out. What a good idea. That actually highlights something that's called learned helplessness. You can actually learn through these heightened emotional experiences that when you try and try, but it doesn't actually succeed, it doesn't work, you can get stuck into this space that says, I, I can't win, so why try? So when the escalator breaks down, <laughs> you gotta sit there and wait until someone gets you off of it. It's, um, 
that's actually probably one of the most shaping experiences which get in the way of the most because this learned helplessness starts to affect other things that you actually can be very successful in. I was going to, but we ran out of time last week, and so I opted out of it. But we were actually going to do an entire experience on learned helplessness, and I have these two lists. Um, spelling words here, three words on this list. Um, the first word is bat. If you had to rearrange the letters and come up with another word, what would be another word using the letters of bat? Tab. Very good. Um, word number two, lemon. What would you rearrange it? Melon. Melon. On this list, first word, whirl, W-H-I-R-L. What other word? Can it be done? Nope. Word number two, slapstick. Rearrange it to something else. Slapstick. St <laughs> stick slap. Fair enough. Smart Alec. It can't be done. But on, this, on both lists, the last word is cinerama. C-I-N-E-R-A-M-A. Cinerama. Rearrange that into? It's hard to see it without it in front of you. Cinerama. C-I-N-E-R-A-M-A. American. It's a little bit harder. It's the same word for both. When they have run this experiment and they handed this list out to a whole bunch of people, when you, when you, if you get the first list with bat and lemon, and you rearrange the word, you raise your hand, and everyone else who has this list with whirl and slapstick, they're going... Um, I must not be very smart. And so statistically, again, got the same last word. The people who have done this list, most of them will be able to rearrange the last word into American. Most people who have this list can't find the word. They have been programmed, they have been taught that says, you didn't get the first two, you're not going to get the third, so why try? It programs you into this learned helplessness stage because an experience has taught you you're just not smart enough. When I do that next year, pretend to be surprised. <laughs> Heightened emotional states. Um, again, questions, thoughts. I am booking it tonight. Yeah. So we're on the escalator, and I'm just, they weren't helpless. No. But they act as if they are helpless, right? right. That means it's been a learned behavior. Yeah, you would think they could. And that, from an objective perspective, we aren't, learn we aren't helpless on escalators like these people are. The solution is very, very easy, which is, huh, which is actually kind of interesting because as a counselor, and I sit with people all day who have significant levels of learned helplessness, and they go, I got this problem. I got this thing at work, and I, I just, I, I, I think I'm going to get fired because of it. And as a counselor, I'm sitting there going, do this, this, and this, and, and, the, and this will actually just be completely a non-issue. It's easy. Easy peasy. Does that help people? <sighs> Wish it did. Man, make my job a lot easier. 
It doesn't. But because I'm not in that situation, I can see it just because I'm more objective on it. So my job as a counselor is to help them go, okay, you're on the escalator. See what happens if you lift your right foot and move it over and then put your weight on it. Oh my gosh. And then move your left foot. Oh man, I did two steps. Maybe I can do another one. And they climb off the escalator because it's practiced and learned. But again, you have to do something. You have, it's an actual experience. All right. So, in the midst of this, in the midst of preparing for tonight, and in the midst of the last six years of my life, seven years of my life, because how to change limiting beliefs is just such a profound, fundamental, underlying, essential skill set for anyone to move through growth. And I have been, I have just been studying and reading and listening and watching and trying to figure out ways to, to help be able to help people to be able to move through this. And it is probably one of the hardest things. Okay? I, I know that we laugh at it and we make fun of it like this, but I understand, I absolutely understand that this is not always easy. In fact, this can create profound, significant emotional distress because you keep trying and nothing works and you keep getting stuck in that confirmation bias and the purple bumblebees keep floating around and it just keeps saying, I just, I don't think I can do it. And it, and I, I'm riled up, okay? I'm, I, am, I am riled up because I want to see people changed. I don't want them to get stuck. I don't want them to believe the lies anymore. And so as I've been wrestling through this, um, I came up with a, an idea. I call it the I suck method. <laughs> the I suck method. And what this is, obviously, is an acronym of uh, steps to move from a fixed mindset, limiting belief mindset, to a growth mindset, an open mindset. The I suck method. Figured that'd be pretty memorable. First one, you simply have to identify. You have to identify or state the fixed or limited belief. You have to do it clearly, you have to do it concisely. You have to be able to say, I believe that I am stupid. I believe that money is wrong. I believe that I will never get a better job. I believe that no one's going to love me. Whatever, whatever that limiting belief is, you have to be able to identify it and, and clearly, articulately be able to state it. Because when you do that, you move into a place of accepting it. And acceptance is simply um, empowering because you don't wait for someone or something else to change you. Because if you did that, if you said, I don't think I'm a very lovable person, now what are you going to do about it? Man, we're going to be waiting for days. It's like, come on. The minute we always expect something else to change, the minute we expect something outside of ourselves to get right before we start to make our own changes, we're stuck like Chuck because we, nothing will line up exactly right before we have to make those changes. So when you identify it, it's also the act of accepting it. This is why at 12-step groups, 12-step meetings, um, you stand up there and say, hi, my name is Paul and I'm an alcoholic. You're very, very clearly stating the, the thing that has kept you stuck. It doesn't mean that that is your identity. It just says, I am not avoiding the issue anymore. This is what it is. 
And then one of the things you can do in this stage is actually exaggerate it, okay? It's, a, a par it's actually kind of an idea of paradoxical therapy, which says you make something worse to make it better. So, I'm stupid. Yes. In fact, I am the stupidest person in the entire room. In fact, you could ask any question to any person here, and I will always be the person who will never know the answer. It doesn't matter what the question is. You ask me what color this pew is, I have no idea. I am that stupid. I, I am just, I am dumb as a bag of hammers. It's just, it is terrible. When you start to exaggerate it, <clears throat> it starts to, you start to see the absurdity of it, and you... It doesn't start to identify you. You identify the, the issue and you start to separate yourself from it. That's the I in the I suck method. Next, you have to identify the senses. This is why we spend the beginning of the evening breathing and checking in, observing what's going on in our body. Emotions are physical, biological. Do you know that? They're not in your head. You don't have emotions in your head. You have emotions physically. You get scared, it's that knot <gasps> in your stomach. It's the rapid increase in your breathing. It's the tightness in your shoulders. Anger, this kind of feeling. This is physical, this is sensations. And so when you start to have a limiting belief, your body also responds. I sit in my office and many, many people sit there like this, talking the whole time very hunched over, head down, and I try to get them to actually change their posture. If you literally lift your head, move your shoulders back, we don't even talk about anything, we don't have to fix anything, but the minute you start to change your posture, it changes your emotional state inside, or actually helps it, okay? It doesn't change it all the way, but it actually helps it. It's, um, it's incredibly important to be checked in and to be aware of what's going on in your body. You can also ask questions like, how true does it feel? So, I am stupid or I am unlovable. Scale of 1 to 10, 10 is totally true. How true does that feel to you? That's about an 8. Huh. What's keeping it from being a 7? And you can start to play with it in those ways. What emotions are connected to that belief? Okay, I'm stupid. That's a thought. That's not a feeling. So what emotions are connected to that? And there are some techniques, there are some experiences, there are some actual um, methodologies to disconnect your somatic experience with your belief system. One of the ways I've actually seen, it's kind of funny, you, can, you, you identify this very limiting belief. I am, I am not good with money, okay? I am not good with money. I genuinely believe that. Man, money, I just, I'm, I'm irresponsible, I'm not very good at it. What you do is you say, you feel that? You got that? You got that really good? Now I want you to stick your finger up your nose and now say it. I am not good with money. People laugh and it changes your, phys changes your physical state. It's harder to take yourself seriously with your finger up your nose. It starts to disconnect. Sorry about that for those in the front row here. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> We start to disconnect the physical stuff from the mental stuff, and it actually starts to change. We just changed our emotional state right now, didn't we? That's a fun way to do it. I gotta remember that technique. Yes. And is that worked 
the opposite way again, because I heard it said that uh, let's say somebody's just complaining a negative and they're talking to you and they just you just kind of look at them and say something about something just totally off the wall random like yellow bus goes beep. Yep. And they just kind of go like what? Yep. Yellow bus goes beep. Like, it yep. changes. It, it's like a jar to the system. It's like a punch in the nose. It's like, what? You can, you can start to shift people out of that. It's an actual technique. It's really, really cool, actually. So, I-S-U. Understand. Um, your negative limiting belief has always, always, always served a purpose. Most people aren't stupid for having these negative beliefs. They worked at some point in some way in their life, and now they just happen to not be working because the environment you're in is different now. And so when you can start to understand what purpose did it serve, when you can understand why you are defending that truth so strongly, it now helps it make it easier for you to go, wait a second, I don't really need to be doing that as much anymore. I can start to change. It's the um, basketball-playing Eskimo syndrome, right? Basketball-playing Eskimo? Okay. There's a little Eskimo baby born in an igloo, grows up on the ice, and the very first thing he's ever heard when he grew up is, you never, ever, ever go outside without your sealskin hat and coat and boots and gloves and pants and all that, or else you will freeze on the ice. He's a very good Eskimo baby. And so every day before he goes outside, sealskin hat and coat and boots and pants and gloves and all those things. And so he goes out and plays and, and grows up and grows up until he's in high school. And now he is the star basketball player in his Eskimo village. And he can play ball. I mean, he's got the stuff. In fact, he's so good that um, schools start to hear about him. They send scouts up and to, to, to scout him for their college. And sure enough, he gets recruited for a school. And... He's the first, first kid in his entire village to go away to college, and mom and dad are really, really proud. They, they say, you know, we're really, really proud of you, and we can't believe this is going to happen to you. They give him all sorts of really good stuff. They put him on a plane, send him off to college. He starts playing ball in college before the season starts, and as he's practicing, as they're doing uh, practices each day, the kid sucks. I mean, he's throwing bricks, he can't keep up with the team, he's just struggling and hurting and, and all this stuff. And he, after about two weeks, he kind of asks one of the other players that he's become really comfortable with, he says, am I really as bad as I think I am? And the guy goes, yeah, you suck. I mean, you're bad. Man, I don't understand because I was hitting every shot I made. I have no idea what is going on. And the guy goes, I don't know either. But I got a question for you. Why in the world do you play basketball wearing sealskin hat and coat and boots and gloves and everything? The rest of us are in shorts and sneakers and that's it. And the guy says, I have been wondering about that because everybody knows if you go outside, you're going to freeze to death. Why? I don't understand. Why aren't you guys dead? Why aren't you guys unafraid? He goes, this is southern Florida. I mean, you want to try it? And so this kid, for the very, very, very first time in his life, takes off his hat and peels off his sealskin hat and coat and boot and pants. Can you imagine what the wind felt like on his skin for the first time? What a weird sensation. Sealskin hat and coats and boots and gloves and all those things, incredibly important. In fact, he probably shouldn't throw them away because if he's going to go home and visit, he's going to need some clothes, right? But in a different environment, the same strategy, the same technique that worked here is now detrimental here. 
Welcome to understanding limiting beliefs because they serve the exact same purpose. They're just misplaced. And so when you understand that, you start to be able to change it. Now the first three here, the identify, oops, identify senses and understanding in the I suck method only take up about 10% each. We don't spend a whole lot of time in those because again, that's cognitive, that's understanding. That is not actually what produces heightened emotional states. That's not what actually changes you. What does change you is challenge by choice. It is when you say, now that I understand all of this, what is the thing I'm going to do that directly contradicts or challenges this belief that I already have? What can I do that is that line I talked about that says, I'm going to step over this and I'm going to willingly, intentionally choose to be uncomfortable for a season. I hate it out here. This is terrible. But I'm used to it. And now I'm here. It's the action. This is what 60% of the time has to be spent in. Because you have to do, you have to identify what is the thing you want to do to change. Knowing where it comes from, connecting it to your body is important, but that's not the main piece. This is where we do things um, like narrative storytelling. We always tell stories about the experiences that, I'm, that you're going to have. So I'm going in for a job interview. You're already telling the conclusion of that story based upon your belief system. I'm going in for a job interview, but because I haven't got the last six, I'm probably not going to get this one anyway. Changes the way you go into the interview, wouldn't you say? So you can actually start to rewrite the story. This is my seventh interview. Statistically, I'm closer to a yes than I was when I did the first one. I'll probably have a greater actual chance of getting a yes on this one because I've got all of the no's out of the way already. I might have one or two more, but I'm at least closer to a yes because just playing the numbers, I've got to win sometime. That's a different story you can tell, which now means you go into the experience in a very different mindset, a different mood. So you challenge by choice, 60% of the time. And then finally, the last 10% is community. <laughs> I had to make it work somehow. <sighs> community. By the way, you'll always remember what K stands for because it's odd, isn't it? Community. When we actively, willingly let others see us struggle and try and fail and recover and try again and fail and struggle and recover and try again and succeed and eventually gain mastery, when we do that in community, that one thing right there challenges the shame. Shame loves to keep us hidden. It loves to keep us isolated. It loves to keep us apart. And so when you do this in front of other people, when you do this and you say, I hate every second of this, but here's what I'm going to do, and I'm going to let you guys see it, and it may or may not work, but I'm not going to hide it you find out that people actually don't go running, screaming from the room because you messed up on a, something you're trying to grow in. They say, you actually might be okay. And you, and you start to experience unconditional acceptance. You start to experience other people trying and failing and recovering and failing and trying and struggling. And you get to speak into their life, which is actually a pretty nice privilege. Now, 
Here's how serious I am about this. My personal approach, Paul Elmore, experience is so unbelievably vital that I told you at the whole beginning of this series, I take this so seriously that I have gone out on a limb and I actually started a nonprofit organization called Praxis Experiential. And it is hopefully going to be a place very, very soon where you can actually go and have physical experiences that do this exact process right there. It's not something that is just theory anymore for me. I've put myself, I've put my family on the line because I absolutely confidently believe in this process. And here's a little, Praxis is gonna be an indoor challenge course. High ropes, low ropes, experiential initiatives, those kinds of things. Challenge courses don't challenge me. I've worked on them for a long time. I like hanging from ropes. I like doing high events. Those are actually kind of fun for me. You know what is challenging for me? Starting a nonprofit scares the crap out of me. But if I'm not willing to put myself, to stretch myself through this exact process, who am I to start an organization that is designed to put other people through that? Unless I'm a really mean person, then that would not be good. I am doing the challenge by choice piece right there. Because I don't have the facility built yet, and because this is so unbelievably serious and important to me, I want to give you a, a way to actually consider trying something like this. And so I actually took this weekend and I built an entire curriculum around this. And I'm going to take eight people, eight people, and we're going to do an eight-week series that's going to go through each one of these and you're going to be in community okay and you're going to put yourself out there and you're going to identify the thing that is limiting you and you're going to try and fail and recover and try and fail and all of that i have space for eight people i have 16 applications because i know half of them won't actually follow through okay so if you are interested i'm going to leave them up here i'll just put them on the thing here you can fill them out and give them back to me tonight if you are interested. If I get eight, as soon as eight people are filled, we're gonna shut it down and, and run with those eight people. If, you, if there's more than that, I'll put you on a, on a waiting list. Um, I've been doing counseling for 10 years. I believe in counseling. I think counseling is unbelievably important. I think it is unbelievably essential. I think that I have had the tremendous privilege and honor of walking with people through experiences and situations that are difficult and painful. <laughs> She's cheating. <laughs> like you can't get up really? Look at that. I like that. That's nice. I, I believe in the counseling model. I think it is very, very important and it has a, I, I plan on doing it for a very, very, very long time. But after doing it for 10 years, my heart aches to provide the very best method, the very best tool to watch people actually change, to watch people actually transformed. And as I have sit with people and I've watched them come from painful experiences, they typically need to have different experiences to transform those beliefs, to transform their self-concept. And so... This is just an, an opportunity I'm making available. I want to offer it to as many people that would like to take advantage of that. Again, the details are written on there, and you can ask me about it later. And it, it might not, it's not for everybody. I understand it's not for everybody, but I, 
Ben has been so kind to let me come and to speak and to, to have the honor of your guys' attention. I, I, I take it incredibly seriously. I, I want this information. I want your experiences. I want your experiences with each other to be transformative because I think that this is what lasts for eternity. This stuff doesn't. This will go away fast enough. But this is what lasts for eternity. And if we can transform this, then it's a good day. That's a good day. So that's up there. Use those if you like. That's just that's another resource I want to make available to you. So like I promised, those are some resources as well that I just have put out in the world. Um, PaulElmore.com is my website. And there are over 200 posts about a whole variety of things. Um, you're able to sign up if you want to get some extra kind of self-assessment resources on the right top right side of the website there. You can um, sign up for that and get some cool assessment stuff. Failure101.com, that is taking a lot of this information and stuff from Failure 101 and making this available in a video series and a, and a work, workbook program kind of thing to go through all of this self-paced because people have asked for that. Codependency quiz is for those who are struggling with relationships and want to learn how to have healthier relationships. Um, I threw that together. And you can, it's an actual quiz. You fill out the little dots, and it will kind of score you on kind of how codependent you are. But then if you click on the videos section, there are 40 videos on there. They're only about three or four minutes long, explaining kind of each one of the questions and kind of what codependency looks like in that one, in that one area. Um, my daughter and I, because relationships family relationships, my, my relationship with her is so unbelievably important. We actually started a podcast together called Daddy Daughter 101. Got a 101 theme going on. I need to branch out from that. Um, DaddyDaughter101.com. Um, there are nine episodes up right now. Technically, there's 10 posted. If you listen to it on Stitcher or iTunes, I got to just get the last post done. I'm in a swamp lately. Um, we're going to be recording some more and putting those out there. That is just a good time. I sure enjoy doing the podcast with my, with my daughter here. It's a lot of fun. And then if you want to get the whole Failure 201 series, you can subscribe to that on iTunes, um, or you can listen to it on my website here. Um, you can also listen to Failure 101 and all the other series from all the other um, summers, as well as just other random podcasts. Like I said, there's just a lot out there. So just I want to make as many resources available for, for everybody and anybody. So question and answer time. About anything from the, from the whole series from tonight? Anything? Say again, I'm sorry? Oh, it is, isn't it? That wasn't very smart, was it? Doggone it. I didn't think that went through. Monday night's the only night I got available. Shoot. Yeah. Sorry, screwed up there. See, like I said, it was kind of a last-minute put-together thing. Um, if you're interested, fill it out, and I will come up with a better night. Just for you. Okay? I am. Yes. What kind of counseling I practice? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Um, I believe in Freudian counseling, so we have this couch that you lay down on and we talk about <laughs> your parents and your mother, and it's very, very... Um, <laughs> I hope I am, because that would not be good. Um, yes, I've been practicing for 10 years. Um, I, used, I started off pretty heavily in the CBT world, so cognitive behavioral therapy, a lot of understanding your thinking uh, and how that affects your behavior, those kinds of things. Um, as I started to study and learn about trauma, I actually moved to a, a somatic kind of modality, which is understanding how trauma affects the body and how it gets trapped within the kind of the muscular and energy systems. Um, if you've done some reading, some stuff around Peter Levine, um, his approach to understanding trauma is a big thing. Um, and so right now, the answer is I'm eclectic. I use whatever is necessary, whatever is best for the clients. For, for some clients come in, they just really have kind of just the thinking errors. We can go through all of the t 10 cognitive distortions and things like that. For trauma clients, we go through an entire recovery model and understanding how it affects both your thinking and your emotions and the somatic and all those things like that. Um, because I am a therapist who is also a believer, um, I am very comfortable and actually enjoy integrating spirituality and faith so I actually have a lot of my clients who come from a Christian background who want that to be able to integrate it into there. So we talk about how this affects your perspective of God, how it affects, um, we wrestle with a lot of the questions. In fact, a lot of the clients I end up sitting with are people who have come in and said, I, I went to my pastor, I went to my church, and the answers they're giving me just aren't fixing the problems yet. And it's like, I understand that, and so I actually would like to create a much healthier relationship between counselors and the church so that, so that um, very, very practical faith, okay? I think scripture has unbelievable relevance to our lives. I think it is actually one of the most relevant things in our lives, and that that model actually works, and so learning how to integrate that in a very practical, realistic sort of way, I'm very comfortable doing that as well, so... I'll work with individuals, I work with couples. I like doing some couples work. Those are really enjoyable as well. So hope that answers the question in some way. Yes? Uh, you touched on uh, positiveness and, and negativity. Yeah. Why do you think it's like your perspective? As human beings, we tend to be in such a broken spot and we come to God. Yeah. And why don't we do it when we're having a positive? Yeah. Why do we come to God when we're in a broken spot and we rarely come to God when we are in a positive spot? The other way it gets phrased is when things are going bad, I blame God. And when things are going good, I'm, do I'm, I'm responsible. Thank you very much. I took, took credit for that one. Um, the why question is probably the biggest question that wounded people wrestle with. Why did this happen to me? Why am I hurting this way? Why didn't something stop it? And they oftentimes turn to the church first to say, I'm looking for answers there. And then they also turn to just trying to understand the world and the universe out there and trying to get those answers. I think pain is, is the, it's actually designed to say, hey, something needs attention and it, and it tends to focus. Whereas when things are operating correctly, we just tend to move back into autopilot and we move back into um, just kind of a homeostasis kind of level. And so it, it, 
We grow best, this is probably the way I would phrase it, we grow best when we are safe but uncomfortable. We rarely grow when we're comfortable. Why? Why do we need to change? We're comfortable, right? That's the whole point. But when we become uncomfortable, it's like, I want to get back to comfortable. And so you start to look and ask and question and try to figure out. So that's why. Any other questions? Yes. Yes. Seems like that's not a very reliable way of making beliefs. So how do we tell which beliefs we can trust? Yeah. Fantastic question. Oh man, I told you we got good people in the audience. Um, yeah. I mean, a lot of my beliefs about God came from Heidi. Yes, they did. Yes. Yeah. Um, the answer is such a profound one because it has to do with a significant worldview. Because right there you go, you can make an assumption, is there an absolute determinant of what is right and wrong? And depending upon your worldview, we'll actually answer that question. Now, coming from a faith basis, I would say there is an objective worldview that is outside of my experiences, and my job as a human being is, as I go through life, is to try to align myself with that objective source of truth as closely as possible. And I will spend a lifetime getting closer and closer and closer to that, and good days and bad days, I'll ebb and flow closer and further away from that. That would be the answer I would give from my worldview as a believer. Now, we also live in a postmodern world, which says, my experience is my experience, and that's my ultimate source of truth, and you're not allowed to question my source of truth, because my source of truth is mine, and your source of truth is yours, and hopefully they can get along. That's postmodern world we live in right now. And if you tend to challenge that, you tend to get pushback, because <laughs> that's not, my worldview is actually not very popular in, in the grand scheme of the world right now. And so the answer to that is, you know, if, if it, this is, I grew up and this is actually, this belief system that I have in place, if it's working for me, it's a very pragmatic source of view, and so I don't actually need to challenge it. A lot of times it will, the, the, in the postmodern world, the number one determinant of if it's good or bad is, is does it cause anyone else pain? That's kind of the new ultimate source of truth. If I can believe what I believe, but it doesn't hurt you and it doesn't hurt me, then I can go ahead and do that. Problem is, I don't think people quite look out long enough to see where the results of that pain shows up. So that's a fantastic question. Yes, ma'am. Um, since we're kind of talking about trying to get your beliefs closer to a transcendent absolute truth. Yes. Um, as you're going through a community, whether it's informal or just chatting with friends, say you're just picking people's opinions right. about big decisions. Yeah. And you, your feedback is, you get feedback from both camps. Yes. Like, yeah, that's an awesome idea. Or like, no, that's a stupid idea. Right. Um, like, <laughs> I personally feel like I could just gravitate and be better friends with people that agree with what I want. Confirmation bias. To go with. Yep. Yep. But, um, like, 
but I know, like, I, I recognize that there's a fallacy in that. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, but at the same time, people you respect are giving you two different answers. Yeah. How do you decide? That's actually not a very difficult question um, to answer. I have people all the time ask me, how do I find a good counselor? And I say, go ask your friends who've been to counseling and you've actually seen them change. <laughs> so many times people go, I got this really good counselor. Yeah, how long have you been seeing them? Six years. I haven't seen any change in this person in six years. I'm not so sure they're a very good counselor. So the people I would probably trust the most out of a community are the ones that I have seen um, live out a healthy lifestyle. So if it goes, okay, this person's decisions and choices are actually beneficial, healthy, um, and again, they're lining up with your value system. They're aligning, they're, again, if they're coming from a faith basis, their, their values are lining up with their ultimate value system. I would probably lean more towards them because there's evidence to show that, that their, their advice tends to be actually applicable. Lots of people have lots of theories. Man, I heard this thing on Oprah. It's a great idea. You should try this. Or from a thousand, I read this thing on a blog somewhere. There's lots of great ideas out there. I love to see evidence. I love to see experience that says, that says, see, there's actually change and growth. So I would look to the people who have actually gone through the most change or lived the most consistent life. Does that make sense? That's, that's what I would do. How you tell them that? That's a harder thing. I'm going to listen to people over here because your life's a mess. I, you know, you figure that one out, but I don't know. Any other questions? Yep. Yeah. And when it's the dead horse that you talked about in the first again. Learned helplessness versus dead horse. Yeah. Because you said the word game, or the word. Yeah. Study. How do I know that I'm not just already convinced myself that I can't get it and it's the difference between that and. Yeah. There's got to be a word that I can come up with world. Man, if I'm just, I haven't looked it up enough or I don't have this thesaurus in my head. Um, that's actually a really good question as well. Um, learned helplessness tends to have very little action on it. So it is, I'm tried, oh, I tried one time, I'm done, I can't do anything else. Dead horse day is, I've tried, and I've tried, and I've tried, and I've tried, and I've done something else, nothing's still working, and I've tried again, and I'm still going for it, and nothing's happening, and finally you realize this is not going anywhere. Learned helplessness doesn't have much action into it at the beginning. So it is world. Huh. I have no idea. Or the other people. Man, getting on my phone, looking up dictionary.com, okay, looking up dictionary.com in other languages. Um, da -da -da -da. And so that's the level of energy, level of, level of behavior connected to it. Yep. Yeah, confirmation bias.
Passive disqualification. Or where it's just maybe confirmation bias is happening more passively. Right. Like the people on the escalator. Right. Where like it maybe was active and they were trying to prove that escalators um, Can I give examples of that? The first thing that comes to my mind is, <laughs> gosh, um, this is going to date me or something. Um, I don't listen to much radio at all, okay? So I'm not up on the latest guys who are touting different approaches, usually political. Um, when you start to tune into the radios for the people who are spouting your your belief system and actively trying to disqualify the others. So pick some Democrat who's disqualifying Republicans or vice versa. Um, you're now tuning in and now you're subscribing to their to their blog and now you're contributing to their blog. You, that, now you're moving into a place that says I'm supporting this, actively supporting and trying to actually promote this this one particular view versus passive, which is, yeah, I'll, just, I'll watch the debates, but I already, like, I already like Democrats, and so I'm probably gonna lean towards Democrats because Republicans, you know, they wear ugly ties, something like that. Um, you're not actively kind of supporting or, or pursuing, does that make sense? It's a, it's a bad example, but... Um, it's, it's more in the active and passive stage, like you're asking, but uh, I don't know if I answered that real good. Ask me later. Anything else? Yes. I have a question. So you talked about growth being in this nice bubble of safety and discomfort. What does it look like to be okay with our comfort? To, like, how do you... How do you get there? Like, how do you say it's okay? Like, I know I'm safe and I know I'm not going to be comfortable. How yeah. do you get, get there? there? Yeah. <sighs> I wish I had a picture of it. Kayla, when you come to Praxis a year from now, there's going to be a thing called a pamper pole. And what it is, it's going to be a platform about 30 feet in the air. And you're going to put on a climbing harness, and you're going to connect to a rope. And that's going to go up to the rafters and through a thing called a, a shear reduction device. And it's going to go back down to some guy who's also wearing a harness. And it's going to go through this thing called a gree-gree. And he's going to hold onto this rope. And you're going to say, OK, I'm ready. And you're going to start to climb this thing and stand on the top of a pamper pole. And the top of the pamper pole is that big around at 30 feet. We have the head nodding no right here. This is like knocking, shaking no. Okay, and you're gonna stand up there and your brain is gonna tell you, I know that this harness is connected to me and I know that this rope can hold 5,000 pounds and I know the guy down there is much bigger than I am and he's actually strapped into a big block of cement so he's not gonna go flying when I jump off of this thing and I'm gonna very intentionally step off of this because, breathe, just breathe, okay? <laughs> I'm going to very intentionally step off of this because I'm going to learn something about trust and I'm going to learn something about 
moving out of my comfort zone. And, I'm, and I'm, I, I feel very, very uncomfortable, but I know that I am very, very safe. The environment has created very, safe, very much safety. Your desire to grow has to be rooted in the knowledge that you are safe. And you have to now align the two. You have to align your behavior and your knowledge. You have to put the knowledge into practice. That's actually the definition of praxis, by the way. Okay, if you look it up, putting theoretical knowledge into practice. It's a pretty good name for a company, isn't it? That does that for people. That's why I named it that. And you can seek out those experiences. You can seek out those experiences in relationship. So it's, here's this person, and I have a hard time trusting, but, but they have demonstrated themselves to be trustworthy and honorable and caring. And so I'm going to offer them one piece of information about myself and see how well they hold on to that. If they hold on to that well, then I'm going to offer them another piece and another piece. It'd be great if there was a place that had the whole design to do that, where they bring people together and they create environments of safety where you can now explore woundedness and brokenness and things you want to grow in groups um, that might be able to have common themes around them and you can kind of grow and expand. Someone should come up with that idea. That's a fantastic idea. 8.34, Ben, I'll watch, let you watch the time, but any other questions before... I let Ben say a few things. Yes. Uh, do you have an example of, um, I, I guess I'm a tangent from stuff, you mentioned a lot of parenting stuff. Yeah. I was really interested in create, create, um, what your thoughts on creating positive what are my thoughts on creating positive like, beliefs for children? Like many, many thoughts. Many, many thoughts. Um, here's how I would answer that question at, at, originally. The healthier the parents, the healthier the children. When you do your own work, when you work through your own stuff, when you become strong and capable and competent, when you let your children see you be imperfect but growing, when they recognize, here's my parents, and they're going to try something, and they might not make it. They might fail at it, but man, how do they handle failure? Look at them. Look what they tried, and it just didn't work. But man, they recover. They grow from it. That right there, your own personal health will always, always, always set the, set the bar. In fact, I teach another class called Talking the Talk. It's sitting with parents, teaching them how to have the birds and the bees conversation with their adolescents. And one of the things I do in that class, which is why I don't get invited back very often, is I make everyone stand up and I have a whole list of all of the biological parts that you're going to have to talk about when you're talking about the birds and the bees. Okay? Body parts. Does anyone know what kind of body parts I'm talking about? Okay? And I have everyone stand up like a choir and we start to recite these body parts. And we start easy, you know, elbow, earlobe, nose, belly button, and then we start to expand. You should see how the crowd responds to that. Okay, there are people covering their eyes, ducking down, coughing a lot, because they can't say words like breast. They can't say words, and I, I'm not going to go into it. 
It's not the space and time. But we come back to the, if you can't even say the words, if your own discomfort is demonstrated, your kids are going to pick up on that, and they're going to learn something about your belief around sexuality. So you've got to do your own stuff first. And then once, once, you're, once you are there as healthy as possible, because children get shaped the most through modeling, they just watch. They are just little sponges. They absorb it in. But now you can start to create what's called naturally occurring learning opportunities, NOLOs. Okay? And so you can take a thing. I thought I might have one. I've got an eyeball. Most people carry around big eyeballs, right? You can talk about, you know, an eyeball, and you can put story after story after story on this, and you can use it moment after moment after moment. And so you start to look for these little teaching opportunities. Um, in fact, how many in here work with the children's ministry at Amago? How many are going to be at the thing tomorrow night? So am I. It's going to be fun. Okay, we're going to go through some of that together. Um, and we're going to talk about NOLOs and how to kind of st structure them and learn from them. Um, Christ was a master at just taking a situation at that moment and, and putting a teaching thing out of it. I tell the story about my daughter when she, um, when she was, oh, I don't know how many years ago, she was probably 11, let's pick a date. And um, we were, we had dessert as uh, just as a family, and so I got three boys, and we pass around some sort of chocolate, something or other, and they take some and take some, and it comes to my daughter, and she says, no, thank you. That's weird, but okay. Goes around, the last one gets it. I take double portion, because I like a lot of chocolate, and we just have enjoy dessert. And then half an hour later, we all jump in the car, and we head to Target, because we're just going to run errands and pick up, you know, paper towels and cleaner and things like that. And as we are checking out, my daughter comes up to me and she says, Dad, I'm going to go get a Slurpee or an Icy or whatever it is from the little cafe thing they have at Target. And I looked at her and my immediate reaction is, no, you're not. Because that's just the default answer parents give any question the kids have. No, no. <laughs> and she says, why not? And because I try to practice what I preach, I stopped and I said, why not? Why can't you go get one? Hmm. The answer is, I don't want you to go get one because I don't want to deal with all the whining and complaining the three boys are going to give because you get a Slurpee and they don't. And she, again, articulately said, Dad, I chose not to have a dessert at home because I knew we were coming here and I'd rather have a Slurpee than a chocolate whatever. And it's like, that makes perfectly good sense. That reasoning, that, that's logical, that's a good, good decision. And it's not your job to, to deal with, a, with whiny brothers. That's my responsibility. I'll take that on for you. And I said, kiddo, have a good time. Go, go get a slushie or whatever it is. And so she, so she went and got one. And guaranteed, sure enough, what do the boys do? I want one. Where's mine? You don't get one. Why not? It's not fair. You had chocolate. If I would have known if we were doing this. Oh, man. Shut up. That's a good parenting technique, too. Shut up. Um, parents that are influenceable, okay? My daughter influenced me. I don't have to be right all the time. 
because I'm willing to be changed by her because she has really good arguments, again, rational kind of debate arguments. Um, I've grown to trust her. I've grown to trust her thinking, her logic, and now I actually have more credibility because when I really mean no, she understands that it's no isn't just no because I'm lazy. It's because there's a really good reason. Those kinds of things around parenting are, are just so, so essential. And again, I know that's not everyone's experience here. Wouldn't it be nice? But I know that that's not everybody's experience. You learned the no. In fact, you learned just not to ask because no would have been a nice response. So there are better ways to do it. There are better ways to parent. I like good questions like that. I'm going to keep going until Ben shows up. So any other questions? Or we run out of questions. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so very, very much for the opportunity to come and sit with you and to spend time with you. Enjoy your night. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like more information, please visit paulelmore.com.